Well, good morning, church. That was a little weaker than 8.15, but we'll, we'll make it work. I hope and I've been praying that as you come in this morning that you have been preparing your heart to come and to worship this risen Savior. I don't know where you're at this week and I don't know all the things that have been happening in your life, but I believe that God has something in store for each and every one of us in here from his word. If you don't know Jesus, or this is maybe your first time here, or maybe you have a lot of questions about this whole God thing, I am so glad that you're here. I hope this is a place that you find some answers, and I hope you end up seeing that Wheaton Bible Church is a place that uh, you can be loved and ask those questions. If you are a, a long-time believer, a long-time attender here even, I pray that the Lord is working on your life and your heart this morning as we gather in this place. And in a little bit, we're going to go back to worshiping through music. But as we enter this time, we're going to just trust that God wants to speak from his word. I don't know about you, but I love good stories you get a, a good book and you start reading it, the book and the story can take you to far off lands or distant galaxies or places with imaginary figures. And you can, you can get sucked into it. Battles are won and they're lost. And in the midst of it, you can end up seeing these heroic characters come up from unexpected places and it stirs emotions in us that don't seem to be there all too often. In a good story, we find pain and we find triumph. We find judgment and we find hope. And it's the, the life of this story, this great, amazing, holy book, that we are able to continue telling stories because this is our foundation. We're going to look at a story this morning. In the year 2000, there was a movie that came out called Remember the Titans. You might be familiar with it. You might have seen it. It's a hard movie to forget once you've seen it. The main character, Coach Herman Boone, is played by Denzel Washington, and he has just taken over as the head football coach at T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia, just in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. During a time of great racial divide and tension. And so he starts and he comes in as a, an African-American coach with his African-American assistant and then two white coaches and there's tension and divide there as well as between every player that walks in. There's this scene at the beginning of that story where Coach Boone wakes up all of the football players very early in the morning. And because they're high school students, they hate getting up at that hour. <laughs> but you can see that they're frustrated with the, the time. They're frustrated that they're going to have to run next to someone else that seems to be different than them. And Coach Boone starts them off, and he runs them through riverbeds and through woods and through the early morning fog until he gets to one spot. And he stops there, and it's a pivotal scene in the entire story. And he says this, and I want to read it to you. 
Coach Boone ends up looking at all these players who are gasping for breath, who are looking at them, hating the man next to him, and he says this, Anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys. Smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen and take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you don't like each other, but you will respect each other. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll learn to play this game like men. It's in that moment that there is a line in the ground, a line in the sand, and this is a message from Coach Boone to the players, a message of judgment and of warning that if something isn't corrected, they would not come together as a team. And so this judgment and this warning was spoken and meant so that each player there had to look at themselves instead of the person next to them and to make a choice. Now I love, love scenes like that in movies, especially because they don't have to do with me. Because I know that if I'm asked the questions and I have to look deep within myself, I know it's going to reveal the sinfulness, the filth, the messiness, and my need for a Savior. And it's a struggle. See, as that was a throwdown message of here's a choice, what we read this morning is a throw-down message, and not one from a coach, but from a king. And he's speaking it directly to the religious leaders, but it's not just for the religious leaders of his time. It's for you and I. See, we sit in his presence. You are sitting in the midst of Jesus Christ right now, we are on holy ground, and he wants to speak, and you are going to have to make some choices today. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 12. I want to give you a little bit of the context. We're going to go back a couple weeks, but this is just a couple days after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And he rides in and the palm branches are waving and people are shouting praise. And in fact, they are shouting praise from a specific place in Scripture. And I want you to remember it because we're going to come back to it. It's from Psalm 118. In fact, it's 
Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So this scene takes place, and there's great praise of Jesus. And then the days that follow are of the religious leaders coming to Jesus and questioning him over and over and over again. We see a scene of Jesus entering the table or the temple and he sees all these people at these tables selling things in the Lord's house and he walks in and he starts throwing the tables over and clearing the temple courts. And the religious leaders come after him saying, whose authority are you doing this on? And so the religious leaders are questioning his authority, and so they ask him a question. And like Jesus always does, he gives them a question back. And if they can answer that question, then he'll answer theirs. And of course, they can't. And that leads us up to this specific story. Now I want to start reading from verse 33 in Mark 11. Question was asked, they had this dialogue, and this is the religious leaders. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Judgment is a harsh word. We don't like to use it a lot, but judgment is coming. This is a parable of judgment. And this is a, a parable that the leaders knew pretty quickly who Jesus was talking to. Now before we move on quickly, I want to make sure that all of us in here understand the symbolism of this story and the symbolism of every character here because it's vitally important. 
The landowner represents God. And you might have read that and said, yes, that's easy to understand. Great. But when we start looking at this, we also have to understand that the vineyard that's spoken of here represents the nation of Israel. And if you look back into the Old Testament, what you would find is that often Israel is referred to as a vineyard. What's also unfortunate is that whenever it's referenced as a vineyard, it often is talking about how awful the nation of Israel is living. And that judgment is coming on them. But here, Jesus says that in this parable, that the judgment isn't necessarily coming to the vineyard, it's coming to the tenants. Now, the tenants represent the religious leaders of that day. That's what that is connected to. And then we see that there's the character of the servants, the servants that are sent over and over again. And that is connected to the Old Testament prophets or the forerunners that would speak in the name of God. And then we have the Son. Beautiful, beautiful Son that is so closely tied to Jesus. See, it's when we start reading this and start understanding this and looking at how each character and the symbolism that they represent, you can see the tension and the struggle, the pride and the idolization within all the characters except two. And so we're going to look at those two characters here soon. Now, the idea in Jesus' day was that you would buy land. This was normal. Landowners would buy land, they would plant, and then they would leave and they would rent the land and the crops to other farmers. See, it's interesting that Jesus is using something that is so visual here because if you look at the past parables, some of them were there to like confuse people. Here he is saying, I am going to make sure that they know what I'm talking about. And so he uses this thing that they understand very, very well. And so the, the landowner buys this and he plants, he leaves, and the rental farmers come in. Now, what was also normal is that for a vineyard, they would plant, and it would often take a minimum of five years before the, the fruit would eventually come, the crop would eventually come in. It would take a long time. But the landowner also would not only get the rental money for that land, but he would also get a portion of the crop. That was the norm. And so what we end up seeing is that the landowner sends a servant, and the servant goes, and the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed. It's a humiliating thing that they, they beat him, and they sent him off, and he gets back to the landowner, and the landowner does something. He sends another one. He sends another servant, and that servant is struck on the head and sent away. Now, I think that before the second one went, this thought would start going through the mind. Well, I saw that one come back, beaten, hurt. I don't know if I want to go. See, what we see here very early on is a direct link to the Old Testament prophets, that where they would question God, the Father, 
Why? Why do I have to go? I know I have to go. I know I have a message. I have to go do this. And it was this tension of what was going to happen all the time. And now we see it in the story. Jesus is basically taking it back saying, look what you did to the ones that I sent. And so the landowner sends another one. And instead of beating or inflicting pain on this one, they kill him. And yet the text, what seems like a a twisted story, says that the landowner continues to send one after another, and some they beat and some they kill, and yet the servants continue to go and the landowner keeps sending them. Now let's stop here and catch something. See, we can easily go through this story here and we can focus so much on what the tenants are doing or what's happening to the servants, but if that's where we stay, we are going to miss something vitally important for our lives. See, this book that we read, this, this story that's coming out, this thing that we are to take in and soak in, reveals the heart of a father. It reveals the heart of God for you and for me and for those outside these walls. And Jesus is telling this story and he's saying, pay attention. See, we sit here this morning, whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not, you are sitting in the presence of a God of grace. A God of grace and mercy. And he wants that understood. Because although this is a story of judgment, judgment to the religious leaders, for them to pay attention to, it is also a story of hope. And folks, that is the gospel. The gospel is a story of hope. It's a story of grace. See, the gospel isn't just about judgment. It's about grace and hope in the midst of judgment being revealed. It has to be there. And so church, hear this. When you reject the beautiful grace of God, you will eventually face His just judgment. When you reject the beautiful grace of God, you will eventually face His just judgment. And what we have to understand as we walk through these doors, and for us we might come through these doors weekly, what Jesus is doing is He is telling this story not to those that don't know God, He's telling it to the religious people. He's telling it to the temple goers, the memory verse winners, the long prayer partakers, and the right looking mask wearers. That's who he's telling it to. See, these look and they seem like the people that we would look at and say they are the disciples of God. And the reason we would say that is because they have all the right answers. They know how to answer every question. They can say any verse that you put out there. And they look good doing it. And that's the problem. 
They are concerned about how they look. They are concerned about themselves. And the grace of God has not been allowed to come within their life and to take root and to cleanse the filth and the mess all around it. See, as a disciple of Christ, we have to understand that grace-filled people make a commitment to sacrificial changes to a God-transformed life. We are to be grace-filled people if we claim to know Jesus Christ. Now see, I don't want to ask this this morning, but I'm convicted to. When I read this and when I think through what is being spoken here, I have to ask, is this me? Is this me? I, I hate struggling through this. I hate going through this because it awakens in me the places that I feel like I don't need the gospel of grace. Because I have my own strength. I have my pride. I have my desire to keep going and going. And I don't want to admit that I'm needy. Is this you? Is this you? I mean, we live in a culture where the idolization of pride and personal growth and advancement and healthy retirement and large bank accounts and a lack of neediness swells. It's growing. And the need for grace seems like a distant dream from the past. You've heard from this book before, but Paul Tripp has written a book called Broken Down House. It's in our bookstore. You need to go buy it. You need to read it. But in it, he talks about this. He says this, Productive living is always rooted in a humble sense of personal neediness. This neediness only comes when you begin to understand and accept what the Bible has to say about sin and daily reach out for the help that can only be found through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is talking about in Mark 12. This is what he is saying. And he has to address this. He has to address this within you and I this morning. See, Palm Sunday has come. And it's past. And Good Friday is coming and it's quickly approaching, meaning that the reality of judgment has to be seen, but not without the gospel of grace revealing itself. See, church, when, when you reject the beautiful grace of God, you will eventually face His just judgment. God in His holiness is present and He is not like you and I. He is dwelling here this morning and He's not at all like us. He can't look at our sin and just let it go by. I don't know how you're 
family holiday gatherings are. I grew up in a home with one brother, and then I married my wife, who came from a very large family. I would go, and for some reason at mealtime, they would all talk at the same exact time. I didn't know what to do. I just started watching everyone and thought, okay, this must be normal. So I married Angie, and her siblings started getting married, and all of us started having kids, and then all of a sudden this large family grew to like a massive army. And there's these little kids running all over the place. It's awesome. It's fun. But at our gatherings, we will sit usually at a long table. We'll eat the meal, and as soon as we can get done with that, we'll get the plates out of the way, and then the kitchen counter totally transforms. It ends up having this vast array of the best desserts that you want to eat. And so you can look at it and your eyes get big and, well, what am I going to choose? All of them. Well, what I've also learned has to do with kids. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law are missionaries in Nigeria. And just over the last couple of years, they brought a new niece into our family. They adopted her. This, this is a picture of her that I want you to see. This is Nansik. Nansik, they found her in a brothel. And they routinely wanted to rescue her. But the Nansik's grandmother actually owned the brothel. Nansik's mom worked there. Finally, they allowed John and Missy to take Nansik, and when they took her, she was drunk on beer. And so they had to take her to the hospital and get her healthy and go through this. And then eventually they got a visa and they brought her to visit us. I fell in love with her. I mean, when I look, at, I, I'm going to see her in a month, and I can't wait to kiss those cheeks. I can't wait to see those eyes. But this is what happened. We finished our meal and everybody was spread out and I walked into the kitchen to the vast array of desserts and the only other person in there was her. And she stopped with her hand up. And she's reaching for this cookie. And I winked at her, gave her a smile, she grabbed it and ran off. And I can do that because she's not going home with me. But here's the deal. For us, we continually reach up to the vast array of the things that look good to us and we reach up and we want to grab them and we so desire for God to look at us and to give us a wink and a smile and let us run off. But He can't because He is a holy God and He has to deal with sin. His holiness must bring judgment. And so the owner 
sends his son, his only son, and he sends him to the place that he sent people routinely and routinely. And when you read it, it's extravagant. Why would he do this? It's an extravagant act. And he does it because God's grace is extravagant. It's overwhelming. And so for all these times that he sent the servants, he was appealing to them on their integrity. And now he sends his son and he's appealing to them by law because the son is part owner and so they have to do this. You know, surely they're going to listen. But in that, the landowner is revealing the foundation of grace. And so the tenants, they know the law and they take the son and they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. Because the law is, is that if there's no heir, Once the landowner dies, the land goes to them. See, folks, if you can kill God, if you can dismiss God, if you can push Him out, you then think in your mind that you are God. And so Jesus asks the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? The term here that's being used is kurios, term for owner. That's what it, the meaning is, is owner. But it also has a second meaning. It also means that God as Lord. See, when you're Lord, you rule over everything. You rule over the great times and the sinful times. You rule over all of it. And because the owner is the Lord, He has to bring judgment. See, when you reject the beautiful grace of God, you will eventually face His just judgment. And so, judgment comes. The landowner comes and he kills the tenants and he gets rid of them and he gives the vineyard to others. And it's, a, it's an aspect that we don't like to talk about. We don't like to see a landowner that way. We don't like to see God that way, but it's his holiness. And so Jesus then takes them to a text. Remember what I said at the beginning? Jesus enters on a donkey and people are praising him from Psalm 118. And so Jesus takes them back to Psalm 118. He actually takes them back to the specific verses of 22 and 23. He says this, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a statement of hope. It's a statement that something is coming James Edwards, the commentator, says this about this psalm. He says, This is a providential note that shares that the human rejection of God's cornerstone was not only foreseen, but used by God for His glory. Church, Friday is coming, but Sunday is right behind it. Glory will be found in the midst of the filth 
and the muck and the dealing of judgment, it will be found because Sunday is coming. And so for the issue of those there was that they forgot who the cornerstone was. They forgot who the cornerstone was to be because they lost their awe of God. See, when we aren't daily living with this thought of having awe of God, worshiping Him, praising Him, it's what Paul Tripps calls a profoundly disadvantaged human being. And what we can't have is a church full of profoundly disadvantaged human beings. The Son came to redeem, to call into a kingdom life, so that it's not full of disadvantaged human beings, but so that it's full of those that are proclaiming grace in the midst of just judgment. It's what is happening here. See, awe of God ends up revealing grace, and grace battles against the idols within our lives. See, you and I must speak the gospel of grace into ourselves and into each other every day. It's not that you hear the gospel of grace once and you come to know Jesus and it's done. It's every day the gospel of grace must be spoken because grace brings identity. And that changes you. See, these leaders that we read here are having a sinful identity crisis. And each of us in here go through that at some point. And the reason that they must identify this within this, in themselves, and the reason we have to identify it in ourselves, is because when you reject the beautiful grace of God, you will eventually face His just judgment. See, Jesus was warning them and he's warning us today. How does he warn us? He warns us through this. That this is a warning full of grace. He warns it whenever we gather and, and we preach. He warns us whenever we walk outside and we are struggling through this and we can watch lives around us who are chasing everything else except grace, and they are finally shipwrecked. He warns us by calling us back to grace through the testimonies of those who were baptized last week. We sit in the presence of a God who is sending over and over and over and over again to our hard heads and hard hearts to say, grace is here. But there's a line in the sand and correction needs to take place. See, God's speaking to us today. In one, on one hand, we have to hear the message of grace and proclaim that message this message of whoever comes to him will find forgiveness, that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to radically transform lives. He has come to give us a hope and a bright future. He has come to welcome us into a kingdom like no other that we've ever thought of. But that that grace won't last forever. 
See, if we keep rejecting his offer of this kingdom life in Jesus, or if we keep denying his love for us, or if we keep walking away from his appeal to come back to us and to return to him, then we will eventually face judgment and it will be just. Because he is Lord. And you are not. So how do you need to come to Jesus today? Some of you in this room have been struggling with this and you have got to come to Jesus and give your life to Jesus and start a relationship with him this morning. Others of you have been shutting Jesus out in certain places where you have idols set up and this morning you are hearing judgment and you have to allow grace to come in and radically transform it. But for each of us in here, we have to ask the question, what does Jesus want from me today? What does he want to transform in me today? And will I open myself to that? Because the cornerstone has come. And the cornerstone will judge, but the cornerstone brings grace. Pray with me. Father, as as we gather here, I pray that you would do a work on us. I pray, Lord, that you would transform our thinking. That you would let the words that you have said transform who we are so that we can be the disciples that you have called us to be. I pray that the, the thought of judgment would actually lead us to that grace and it would move us as we leave this place that we would be a people that are changed and desiring to proclaim a kingdom that you usher in. I pray, Lord, that as we gather here, as we gather in, in just a moment, as we give gifts financially, I pray that you would use that for your kingdom expansion, that you would use that to proclaim the gospel of grace. And as we stand and as we shout praise to you, I pray, Lord, that you would get all the glory, that a smile would be on your face because we are surrendered before you and you are king. And it's in your name that we pray, the risen Savior, the King of all kings. Amen.